Well, good morning. Well, if you would go ahead and, and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be in verses 13 through 35 as we wrap up the life of Gideon today. And, uh, and Gideon is, is one of those famous characters in the Bible. He's in the famous uh, Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, as someone who is a testimony to us of how to trust God. Um, he's a tremendous example for, for us to look up to. Uh, but as we're going to see in our passage today, that while Gideon was a man of, of, of faith and he was a, a man who uh, showed that faith greatly at times, he was also a man who was prone to temptation, just like you and I. And sadly, Gideon ends his life, unfortunately, like so many others, uh, by giving in to the temptations of this world. And it's a story that we know all too well, isn't it? A story of a godly man who gives in to pride and temptation. A story of a godly man who starts off so well, but ends so poorly. And the media uh, loves these type of stories, right? Uh, there's kind of like a sick infatuation in our culture uh, with people who fall, who fall far from grace. Um, and there's so many different people I could point to even recently that you and I know. Um, we are all too familiar with Christian leaders who start so well but end so poorly. And the common denominator in most of these situations is failure is often intimately tied to success. Failure is often intimately tied to success. For many of these Christian leaders who have fallen, they typically fall at the height of their ministry success. It's when things were going really, really well that they gave in to temptation and they fell. And my, my prayer for us today, as we dive into this passage, that we'd be a people who would realize that that does not have to be our story. That doesn't have to be our story. Um, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. If you're still breathing right now, then there's still opportunity for you to repent. Repentance is still possible. But this passage is also a warning to those of us who are not taking our pride seriously, that if we are not careful to keep our pride in check, it will utterly consume us because pride always comes before the fall. And the small, everyday compromises that you and I make, they matter. They matter. And the temptation that comes with success is often the most lethal. So may we tread the waters of success with great reverence, for it's in times of success, church, not hardship, that we are often most vulnerable. So that's where we're heading today. Pretty encouraging stuff, right? Maybe not stuff we like thinking about, but stuff we need to think about. Amen? We need to think about this stuff because our legacy depends on it. Future generations depend on it. Will we end our life well, church? Encouraging the next generation to do the same? Or will we end our life poorly? Encouraging the next generation to do the same. Will you join me as we come before our God in prayer? Father God, I pray right now that your word 
would have its way in our hearts. That as we dive into Judges 8, that it would sink its roots into our hearts and it would manifest fruit. God, we need you. We need you right now. Would you speak to us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we jump into our text, uh, let me catch us all up to speed uh, by giving you some quick context. So we'll have a better understanding of what's going on in Judges chapter 8. But if you'll remember, uh, when, when Gideon shows up on the scene, uh, the Israelites were going through a pretty tough season. They were being oppressed by a group of people called the Midianites. And so God raised up Gideon uh, to lead the Israelites out of oppression by waging war against the Midianites, where God promised Gideon victory, even though the odds were not in his favor. And you'll recall when God initially called Gideon into service for the Lord's work, uh, Gideon didn't want to do it. He had all sorts of doubts, and he needed all sorts of reassurance by God. But after the Lord reassured Gideon, Gideon responded in bold faith. And once Gideon expressed faith in love, God would test Gideon time and time again because he wanted to accomplish some big things through Gideon. But those things could only be accomplished through faith. And so God would often test Gideon. And God does the same thing with us, doesn't he? You see, faith is not a one-time deal. It's a lifetime deal. Now, there is a moment in time when every believer in Christ comes to faith, a moment when you believe and understand that you are a sinner who is in desperate need of grace, and you will place your faith in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And once you believe in that, you are eternally secure. There is nothing you can do from that point forward to negate your salvation. That's John 10. But even after you've become a Christian, God will test your faith time and time again because he wants to do way more than just convert you. His desire is to transform every aspect of your life into the image of his son, which can only happen through faith. So in order to transform you more into Christ's image, God will continually put you in situations where you're going to have to trust God. And some of you are like, brother, I'm there right now. (laughs) But that's how maturity happens. That's the process of sanctification. God isn't being mean to you. It's actually the opposite. God really, really loves you. And he wants to produce something beautiful in you. He wants to get rid of all that nasty, broken sin in your life. And he wants to replace it with fruit, life-giving stuff. But transformation, it's impossible apart from faith. So with that in mind, God will purposefully stretch you through periods of testing, giving you the opportunity to express faith. And God does the same thing here with Gideon. God will call on Gideon time and time again to boldly express faith because God loves Gideon. And he'll do the same thing with you, church, and he'll do it with me because God loves us too. But as Roger preached on last week, one way God gave Gideon an opportunity to express faith was by only allowing 300 men to join his army to fight against a Midianite army of 135,000. The odds of victory were slim to say the least. Uh, Vegas wouldn't have liked them betting odds of victory. 
And on top of that, instead of weapons, God tells Gideon, he says, tell your army um, to put a torch in one hand and then a trumpet in the other. Like, I don't know how you kill someone effectively with a trumpet, okay? It sounds messy, um, but that's how God told them to roll. And even though it doesn't make sense, uh, God had proven himself faithful to Gideon, therefore Gideon trusted God. And as Gideon and his trumpet boys sneak up on the enemy, Gideon bowed down in worship and he said, God, if you're with us, let's roll. And they did. And when the Israelites blew their trumpets, God did his God thing and caused all sorts of confusion for the Midianite army. It was a God-ordained chaotic mess. And the Midianites practically wiped themselves out as they started fighting one another in this confused panic. And the remaining Midianites, who didn't kill each other, wisely fled. And Gideon and his men, they chased after them. And while they were chasing them, Gideon asked men from the nearby towns of Ephraim, Succoth, and Penuel, to accompany him in taking down the remaining Midianites. But these fellow Jewish brethren refused to join in God's mission, and they mocked Gideon. And Gideon says, so be it, I'll deal with you all later, which we'll get to here in a minute. And finally, after a tireless pursuit, Gideon and his men catch up to these fleeing Midianites, and they rout the remaining army, and they capture their two kings, Zeba and Zalmanah which is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 13. Y'all up to speed now, or do I need to repeat that all again? <laughs> all right, first, verse 13 says this. Let's read. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a youth from Succoth, and he questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmanah, Hey, what kind of men... Were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Then Zeba and Zalmanah said, rise up yourself. And fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmanah. And took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. Let's pause there. So we see here in this passage. Okay, after Gideon has returned from battle. Uh, he's probably uh, feeling like a straight up boss. I mean, he, uh, he and his 300 man army, they just wrecked shop on the Midianites. And I mean, uh, Gideon probably feels like he is a bad dude. <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately, uh, he's starting to become just that. He's starting to become a bad dude. Um, there's something, I think, there's something starting to turn inside of Gideon. Something different is going on, in my opinion, something not good. It says after he gets back from battle, 
The text says he captures a youth from Succoth. Remember, this was one of the towns that scoffed at Gideon when he had asked them earlier for assistance. And so Gideon kidnaps this kid and he interrogates him, probably rather forcefully, probably through the use of scare tactics in order to get the names of all the leaders of Succoth. And the boy writes down all the names of the men and, and, and Gideon takes this intel and, and gathers up every leader of that town and he says essentially, hey, y'all remember me? Y'all remember the guy that, that you mocked? Remember when you refused to join when we called? And do you remember how I told you I'd come back and deal with you later? Well, here I am. What are you going to say now? And Gideon takes some thorn branches and he tortures the men of that city. And then he goes to another town who refused to assist him and he kills every single man in that town. And to some degree, you could say, hey, Gideon's just fallen through with his word. He told them this was God's mission. Therefore, these towns weren't just rejecting Gideon, they were rejecting God by not joining in the fight. So at some level, the men in these towns rightfully deserved the discipline they were getting. But on another level, I'd say something is changing in Gideon. Something sinister is starting to take hold of his heart because these weren't just some Canaanite pagans. These were Jewish brethren of Gideon. This was family. And the ruthlessness of his actions here don't necessarily line up with Yahweh's long-suffering and patience towards his chosen people. Even Gideon doubted God early on. And God was patient with him. But Gideon refuses to show that same patience to others. Because something in Gideon's heart is changing. What about you, church? Are you patient with others? Does your patience towards others reflect God's patience towards you? I know for me that's not always the case. But church, we need to be careful and we need to keep an eye on that and work on it or our hearts might grow cold. And I think that's what's happening to Gideon. And after dealing with his Jewish brethren, Gideon then turns his attention to those two Midianite kings he'd captured. And Gideon refers to an incident that we aren't told much about. He says, hey, who were those people you killed in Tabor? And the two kings respond. They say, you know what, Gideon? They looked a lot like you, man alluding to the fact that they had killed some relatives of Gideon. And Gideon responds, he says, those were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If only you had let them live, I would not kill you. And his response kind of, uh, it kind of reminded me of uh, the movie, The Princess Bride with uh, Inigo Montoya, you know what I'm talking about? Where he finds a six-fingered man uh, who killed his father, and he says, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Okay. <laughs> but there's something in us, like, where we, we see this, and we're like, yeah, go get him, Gideon. Like, give it to him. <laughs> give it to him. But I want you to notice, though, but there's something turning in Gideon, like something deeper is changing. Because we see, instead of killing these kings himself, he takes his firstborn son, Jether, who was just a child. 
And he calls up his boy and he says, rise up, son. Kill him. Kill him. And the question is, like, why is Gideon wanting his son, a child for that matter, to kill these two kings? Well, because in the ancient Near East, it would have been a great disgrace to die at the hands of a woman or a child. Because that would imply that you were not able to overcome your slayer. So it was, it showcased weakness. And so Gideon's intent here is not just to execute justice. No, by having his boy kill them, Gideon is to determine not only to kill these kings, but to humiliate them. You see, something's changing in Gideon. Instead of just trying to complete the Lord's will, he's now trying to complete his own personal vengeance, and it's driving him mad. Asking his child to kill them proves this. Now, I don't think Gideon is crazy here. I don't think what he's doing is unnatural. Actually, I think Gideon's response is the natural way any one of us would respond if it wasn't for God's grace. It's natural to want to get even. It's natural to withhold forgiveness from someone who has wronged you. It's natural to dismiss others who disagree with you. And there's something inwardly satisfying about demonstrating your power over someone who has wronged you. It's natural. But it's not Christ-like. And you know what's unnatural? Continuing to love even when it's not reciprocated. You know what's not natural? Seeking justice, not vengeance. You know what's not natural? Giving grace instead of retaliating. You know what's not natural? Choosing to pray instead of gossip. Now, giving grace doesn't mean there shouldn't be consequences for people's actions. I had to talk to my daughter about this the other day. She got a consequence and she was like, Daddy, I I want grace. You're supposed to give me grace. I was like, I bet you do want grace right now. Um, But grace doesn't mean that there aren't consequences in this life. Now, the beauty of grace is you're not going to be defined by those consequences. The beauty of grace is somehow in God's manifold wisdom, he will use even the consequences in your life and he'll work it for good. And praise God for that. Amen? And the same is true with forgiveness. Showing forgiveness doesn't mean we shouldn't set up appropriate boundaries with people and then hold them accountable to those boundaries. You can still forgive somebody and hold them accountable. But there's a difference between holy justice and personal vengeance. You follow me? Vengeance is the Lord's, Paul says in Romans 12, and he will repay. As God's people... We're to seek after justice. We're to live as God's kingdom representatives who stand for truth, but we're also to be people who proclaim the marvelous grace of God by our words and our actions. There is no place for personal vengeance in God's kingdom, which means we've got to lay aside our pride and we've got to trust God for justice. And that takes a great deal of humility, doesn't it? That's not easy but it showcases our faith. Because personal vengeance, it'll eat away at your heart. And personal vengeance will turn you into a monster. And that's what happens with Gideon. 
He no longer is seeking after God's will but his own. But Gideon's son, he wasn't ready to do what his father asked of him. He's just a kid. He's scared. He's confused. His, his daddy's pressing him too hard. And the two kings, not wanting to, be, wanting to be disgraced, they start mocking Gideon, challenging his manhood. And they say, hey, Gideon, as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon gives them what they asked for, and he rises up, and he slaughters both of them. And then he takes their jewelry off their camel's backs, which leads us to verse 22. Let's pick it up there. It says this in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Let's pause there. So after this supernatural victory, God had given Gideon and his army, the Israeli people were naturally impressed. They were so impressed that they asked Gideon to be their king, which may seem logical at first glance. I mean, why wouldn't they want Gideon to be their king? He had just delivered them from one of their greatest foes. The problem with their proposals, it once again showcased Israel's failure to see God's hand in all of this. They saw Gideon, not God, as the one who delivered them. Remember, judges were leaders who were anointed and raised up by God in order to deliver God's people from crisis so that they could point them back to God. That was the purpose of a judge. By not having an earthly king, it forced the Israeli people to look to God as their king. But these people are like you and me, church. They're stubborn. They didn't want to look to God. So they said, Gideon, we want you to be our king. You're the man, you and your descendants. Come on. The other problem with their proposal is God had told them very specifically in Deuteronomy 17 that if Israel was going to have a king one day, he'd be the one to choose them, not them. And Gideon realizes this. And so he wisely refuses their flattery. He says, I'm not going to rule over you, and neither will my son, but the Lord shall rule over you, which is a good response. You read that and you're like, attaboy, Gideon. That's a good answer. But his actions in verses 24 through 35 don't line up with what just comes out of his mouth. So let's read what he says. It says this in verse 24. Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw in an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, which equates to about 40-plus pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on their camels. Verse 27, and then Gideon made it into an ephod, and he placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. So it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, which is a nickname for Gideon, went and lived in his own town. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, 
who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is Gideon's actions are not lining up with his words. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, my wife was getting a a spam phone call. Y'all get any of those? And, uh, and this one particular spammer, uh, we got one going on right now, okay. Um, and this one particular spammer uh, was, was really, really persistent, okay, um, just like this one, okay. And he called my wife, no joke, he called my wife like 10 times. I'm I can help you out. Whose phone is it? It says, all right, good night. If, this, if, if the spammer, if he's watching, he's calling right now, I'm... I'm coming after you, okay? But this dude, no joke, called my wife about 10 times, 10 times in a row. Finally, about the 11th time, I said, girl, give me the phone. And uh, I answered it in a real high-pitched voice. <laughs> he, said, he said, is this Rachel Upmore? I said, yes, it is. <laughs> he said, ma'am, did you know that Amazon has fraudulently charged you $760? I said, no way. You've got to be kidding me. Whatever must I do? He said, well, do you have a computer? I said, yes, I have a computer. Let me open it. Let me guess. Do you need my bank account number so you can fix all of my problems? Well, this man starts to figure out that I'm messing with him. And he says verbatim to me, he says, ma'am, you're a smart woman. I said, thank you. (laughs) And then, no joke, he tells me this. He says, Stop wasting my time. And he hung up on me. (laughs) Pretty ironic, okay? Isn't it? You got a spammer who spends his day wasting other people's time telling me not to waste his, okay? You see, his actions didn't necessarily line up with the words that were coming out of his mouth. And the same thing is happening here with Gideon. He's saying one thing, he's doing another. In verse 23, he gives a theologically correct answer. It sounded good coming out of his mouth, but in verse 24, he immediately contradicts himself with his actions. In verse 23, he says, I'm not your king, God is. In verse 24, his actions say, I am the king, now give me what I deserve. And he's given 1,700 shekels of gold from the spoils of victory. And he takes that gold and he makes it into an ephod, which he brings back to his hometown. Now, some of you are like, what in the world is an ephod? Well, an ephod was typically worn by the high priest in the tabernacle. The tent where God was present among his people. And ephod designated the, the true place of God's dwelling. It's where you would go in order to receive discernment from God. 
And so by making an ephod and setting it up in his hometown, Gideon was essentially proclaiming to the people, if you want to find God, if you need a heavenly discernment, look no further than me. I'm your guy. Which was totally out of bounds. And the effects of Gideon's self-righteous behavior were devastating. Verse 27 tells us, it says, after Gideon made this golden ephod and placed it in his city, it says, and all of Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. And some people may be like, well, verse 28 says that the people experienced peace for 40 years, so obviously things seem to be working out well for them. Listen, don't be fooled into thinking that just because there's peace on the outside, that equates to there being peace on the inside. This was surface level peace for the Israelites. This was a social media profile of somebody who looks like they're living their best life and they got no issues, yet inwardly they're struggling deeply with turmoil. Sure, for 40 years, the land had peace, but this was peace void of worship. This was peace on the outside, but chaos on the inside as God's people ran away from him towards other idols in their hearts, which will ultimately lead to a catastrophic end, which Roger is going to preach about next week. Because there is no true peace apart from true worship. Gideon had an amazing opportunity to use this victory God had provided in order to point people back to God, but he led them away from God instead. Gideon knew what words to say. But his actions said otherwise. He said he wasn't their king, but he functioned as if he was. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said of Israel's to have a king one day, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Yet Gideon does just the opposite. He took a large amount of gold and he took on many wives. And he even had a concubine. And this concubine bore him a son. And what did Gideon name him? Abimelech, which means my dad is king. And the question is, man, what in the world happened to Gideon? Like he started off so well, but he ended so poorly. Like what happened? Well, church, the same thing that happened to Gideon is the same thing that happens to many of us. During times of success, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need God. When things are going our way, it's easy to think, you know what, I, I really don't need God's grace. Maybe that doesn't come out of your mouth, but by your actions, you live like it. And we start thinking, you know what, I can do it. I earned it, I did it, therefore give me what's mine. It's a toxic mentality. And we are all prone to it. And if we're not careful, success will turn us into a monster. I had a mentor once tell me, he said, Jason, God uh, will usually deal with people in one of two ways. The first way that he'll deal with some people is through failure. For some, God will use failure 
to turn your life completely upside down. Sometimes through unforeseen circumstances that were beyond your control. Other times, God will turn your life upside down by allowing you to make bad decisions that will cause your life to spiral out of control. But in the midst of that failure, you'll become broken. And it's through that brokenness that you'll find God and you'll discover his grace. And you'll learn that because of God's grace, no one is ever too far gone from God. And through failure, you'll learn the beauty of redemption. And for some of y'all, I've talked to y'all. For some of y'all, that's your story. You failed big time. And through that failure, through your brokenness, God made himself known to you. And he said, I still love you, child. And you're experiencing the beauty of redemption, the beauty of new life. And that's how God deals with some people. For others, the second way that God will deal with some is rather than failure, he'll let you succeed. Everything you touch will turn to gold. Everything you do will seem to work out and reap good results. You'll get the promotion. You'll live in the house that you always wanted. You'll have the picture-perfect family, the nice retirement plan. Everything that the world deems a success, God will grant you. And then you'll get to a point in your life, and you'll pause, and you'll think, and you'll be like, man, was that it? Was that it? There's got to be more. And for some people, that thought will drive them mad. And they'll go to their grave trying to achieve more and more because no matter what they achieve, it's never enough. Or you'll be like some that in that moment, you'll fall on your knees and you'll find out what the writer of Ecclesiastes says where he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, it was all vanity. And in that moment, you will cry out to your Savior for a peace that can never be earned, only received. And you'll taste grace. You'll taste grace. The good news about Gideon is his failure did not define him. Hebrews 11 refers to him as a man of faith. If you're sitting here, listen, and you're like, Jason, I have blown it. I've wasted my life seeking after things and statuses that at the end of the day are just worthless. The good news is, brother or sister, that if you have faith in Christ, you are not defined by your pointless ventures. And brother or sister, if you are still breathing, your legacy has yet to be determined. There is still time to end well. Repentance is still possible. The beautiful thing about God is he can take a lifetime of bad decisions and he can redeem all those mistakes in an instant. He's that good. So trust him and start investing your time and your energy into the things of God. The problem with Gideon is he got to a point in his life where there was a growing gap between what he would say and what he would do. And to some level, we can all relate to that, right? We can all, at least I can, we can all relate to doing 
in saying things that are against what we know to be true. But for some of you, this has become a growing problem. What you say and how you act are becoming increasingly detached from one another. Your actions in your faith are becoming more and more out of harmony. And this happens really easy in the church because we're good at getting into Bible studies and we know how to say the right things. We know the right answers. But our life doesn't line up with what we proclaim. And if that's you right now, first off, I want to tell you, there is grace for you. God loves you. But the first step towards breaking that cycle is to own that reality. To confess that your life is not matching your faith. There can be no life change, church, apart from confession. You've got to start with God. And if you're sitting here, and if I was a betting man, there's probably quite a few where you're sitting here and you feel like a hypocrite. You feel like your life doesn't match what you believe. The first step is you come before your God, who is a gracious God, who hears his children when they pray. And you start there and you say, God, I know that my life is not matching my faith. Will you help me? I don't want to do this anymore. You got to start there. And I know that takes a lot of humility, but there's, there's no moving forward unless we start there. And some of you, you need to do that this morning. And then once you do that, the second step is this. You need to position yourself for obedience, which means you need to get some other people that are in the church. You need to get them around you. You need to confess to God and confess to them. My life is not matching my faith. I don't want to be this person anymore. And then let them help you get rid of sinful habits and replace them with God-honoring ones. That's what sanctification looks like. And you're not going to do that perfectly. But you're going to get people around you, and they're going to help you with God's help through his spirit, by his grace. And you'll do that the rest of your life. Some of you are like, Jason, I am doing that. I've been doing it. I just keep falling. Well, cool, keep getting back up. There's grace for you. Keep going. Take another step. Take another step. But for some of you, today may be that first day of saying, you know what? I'm done acting like this fake person. I want to be authentic. And let's start today. Will you trust God today? What's a step that you can take today so that your life can be more aligned with what you believe? And that's something all of us can ask ourselves. What's a step that we can all take today? Don't think about tomorrow, today, so that our lives can line up with our faith. And I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to start processing through that so that you can think about it as we come to the communion table. If you're listening online and you haven't grabbed your communion elements, go do that now. Um, If you're here in person and you forgot to get communion, get the elements, go ahead and raise your hand. And we got ushers that are going to come and and they're going to, they'll get it for you. Okay, but keep your your hand raised so they can see you. We got some up front and back over here. And then once you get it, if you want to go ahead and do this now, it takes some discipline and some grace, but just peel back that first layer and that second layer, and then we're going to take it together.
Um, for some of y'all, you may be sitting here or maybe you're just listening at home. And maybe you're here, you've been holding the communion elements. But if you're honest, you've never known grace. You don't know what grace looks like. You don't know what it feels like. You've always felt like you've had to prove yourself. It's never been enough. And I don't know what you're going through. But what I do know, for those of you that have never known grace, you don't know grace because you don't know Christ. And so I want to start there. For those of you, if there's anybody here right now, and I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you raise your hand or anything like that, okay? Nothing crazy. Don't, don't get worried. But what I am going to ask you is just right now, just silently, wherever you're at, I'm going to ask you to just consider, have you ever trusted in Christ for the salvation of your sins? What the Bible says is there's nothing that we can do by our own actions that will ever make us right with God. You can't obey enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't do just a bunch of rules, and that's not going to make you right with God. You are too broken. God says there's only one way that you can be made right. There's only one way that you can ever become eternally secure, and that is by trusting in the provision that I provided through Jesus Christ. When he went to the cross, he went because he wanted to. And he died for every sin, every mistake that you've ever made. When he got up on that cross, he crushed all that stuff as a gift. Not because you deserved it, it was a gift. And then they buried him. And three days later, he rose from the dead in order to prove to everybody that he is God. And that's why 2,000 years later, we're still singing songs. And all you have to do is believe, have faith. And if that's you right now, I want you just silently in your heart, just say, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need you. Please help me. God, I believe in your grace. I believe in Jesus. I believe in who he is. I believe in what he did. And you pray that in your heart. And brother or sister, if you're praying that, when you say amen, you say it in Jesus' name. And I want you to know in that moment, you're now a new creation. And you're now part of God's family. And as you take communion here in a moment, you're taking this with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, come, come talk to me right after. I'd love to talk to you about next steps. And if you're online, be bold, send me an email. And I'd love to talk to you as well. For the rest of us, as believers in Christ, communion reminds us that because of what Jesus did on the cross, repentance is always possible. So may we take the grace we've been given and let's take a step of obedience today. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, the body of Christ, take and eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, the blood of Christ, take and drink. Let's pray. Father God, as, as we dove into your word this morning, 
we're reminded of, of a bunch of things. But one thing we're reminded for sure is that the small, everyday compromises that we make, they matter. And for some God, there's people here that are listening, and if they're honest with themselves, they'd say, you know what? I've been making a bunch of bad compromises for a long time. And I pray that today would mark a new day for them. A day where they put a stake in the ground, they'd say, no more, I'm not doing this anymore. Christ shed too much blood on that cross for me. I ain't doing this anymore. I'm walking with him now. And I pray that you'd give them courage and boldness to do the things that they need to do in order to walk well. God, for the rest of us, we want to, we want to once again just praise you for your grace, God. Thank you for your faithfulness towards us. You are so good. And I pray that you give all of us courage just to keep going, to take another step. That's all you ask us to do. We don't have to worry about tomorrow, just today. And I pray as we walk out of here, God, that we would worship you with our lives. That what we say and what we do would align. And we sing one more time. And we're going to lift our hands in a moment and say, God, you are worthy of all of our praise. There is no one like you. And because of what Christ has done, we can boldly say, it is well with my soul. It's well. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.